you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text today. We're going to be in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look together at verses 15 through 23. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. I'll ask you to please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is God's holy word for us, his people. And the word of God says, He, speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, we thank you for the gift of Holy Scripture, and we do ask that you would bless the reading, and now especially the preaching of your word. May your truth go forth, and may you stand forth from your word and reveal yourself Open our eyes to see you. Open our ears to hear your voice. Write your truth upon our hearts. You be our teacher today. And may we go from this place changed a little bit more into the glorious image of our Savior. For his name's sake we ask it and for your glory, almighty God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, we are still in the season of Easter. It's not just one day on the calendar for the church. It's a season of the liturgical year. We're in the season of Easter, and so we're going to continue this morning thinking about the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, Colossians chapter 1 Uh, shows us a few things that we learn about Jesus from his resurrection. Before we get to our passage, let me back up a second and say that in the New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul, the resurrection marks out the authority of Jesus as the Son of God. Now we see this 
in Paul's letter to the Romans, in chapter 1, the very opening of his letter, Paul spells this out. This is how the letter to the Romans begins, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, or God's gospel, God's good news, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son. So what's the gospel? It's God's good news about his son prophesied in the Old Testament and revealed when Jesus shows up. And this is the content that Paul gives us here of this gospel. It's the gospel concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. And then, verse 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness or the Holy Spirit by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So who Jesus is is made absolutely crystal clear when God raises Him from the dead. He takes His Son who has died upon the cross, buried in a tomb, and He raises Him from the dead and He installs Him at His right hand as Lord of all things. He shows you who this Jesus really is by raising Him from the dead and exalting Him back to the place He had before He left heaven for us. He restores that glory that He had with the Father before the world began. Just as Jesus prayed for Him to do in John 17. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. The resurrection marks him out as the Son of God. And it shows us his power and his authority and his true position and his true nature and his true place as God's Son. The resurrection does this. Or think of Philippians 2. I won't go there, but Philippians 2, 8 through 11 it's called the, the hymn to Christ. Right? It actually starts in verse 6, but in the second half of that hymn to Christ, in verse 8, it says, because of his obedience unto death, even death on a cross, verse 8, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of the Father. He has been humiliated in his coming, to, to take on our flesh, to be born of the virgin, to live a life down here with us. And then he goes all the way to the cross, all the way to the tomb, and God exalts him all the way back up to his right hand. His humiliation into his death and his exaltation in his resurrection. The resurrection tells us who Jesus really is. And because of Easter, we see Jesus as the firstborn Son of God. That's how Paul talks about him here in Colossians 1. He's the firstborn. He calls him that twice in our text. So in our passage this morning, Paul explains what it means in light of the resurrection, in light of Easter, what it means for Jesus to be the firstborn. That's where we're going. And in our text, Paul tells us that it means at least these Three things. Number one, that Jesus, as firstborn, is Lord of his creation. Number two, Jesus, as the firstborn, is head of his church. And then third, Jesus is redeemer of his people. Lord of his creation, 
head of his church, redeemer of his people. Let's look how Paul unpacks these one at a time. We'll start with Lord of his creation in verses 15 to 17. So in these first initial verses, Paul says that Jesus is there in verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. You see that in 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, immediately, if you run into a, a Christian who denies the deity of Christ, someone who says that Jesus is not divine, Jesus is just a creature. Yeah, he's the greatest, mightiest, most exalted, magnificent, unfathomably glorious and divine creature you could ever possibly conceive of, but he's still a creature. He's not God. If you run into someone like that, one of the places that they will go to give biblical support for that idea is right here. Colossians 1.15. It's a classic text for these uh, heretical groups. And they say, look, just read your Bible. It says right there, he's the firstborn of all creation. Hello, he's the first thing God made. He's the first creature. The firstborn out of all the other things that were created, he's first. So he's the greatest thing imaginable below God. He's not equal with the Father. He's a creature. He's the firstborn of all creatures, but still a creature. This is the passage they'll go to. And so we have to be careful, and I want you to be prepared. If you ever hear someone say that, I don't want you to be blown back on your heels and caught off guard like, wow, I've never seen that verse before. I've, I've never thought about it. It's right there, you're right. It does say firstborn of all creation. I don't know what to do with this. Well, it's a good thing you're here today. <laughs> it's a good thing you're watching online. And it'll be recorded. So you can get this insight again later. What do we do with this? Well, firstborn language is used a lot in the Bible. And it could, if all we had was this one sentence... If Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, and all it said was, Paul, an apostle to the Colossians. Jesus is the image of God. He's the firstborn of all creation. Sincerely, Paul. If that's all we had, then you'd say, well, I don't know what to do with this. Maybe that is what it means. But just look at the context. Usually the answer to these kinds of objections to Orthodox Christianity is read the rest of the passage. That's normally the right answer. Let's just read the rest of the passage and let's see what else is said in context. We know that firstborn of all creation does not mean he's the first creature because of the surrounding context. Look what Paul says in verse 16. He, said, he explains what he means by introducing verse 16 with that little three-letter word that is so important in the New Testament, for. F-O-R, for. Anytime you see that, almost virtually every time you see for, you can change that in your head into because. And it's telling you that what I just said in the previous verse is true because of what I'm about to say in the next verse. X is true for because Z is true. That's how the logic works. So you can find these little connecting words that Paul uses or John or Peter or whoever in the New Testament, and you can follow their train of thought. You can see the logic of the Bible as it's at work. You can watch the apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit thinking God's thoughts after him so that you can think God's thoughts after him. 
He's the firstborn of all creation for, because, by him, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So just ask yourself, if Jesus is a creature, if the Son, before the incarnation, way before Bethlehem, before the foundation of the world, if the Son is a creature, how could he be the creator of all things? He'd be one of the things, wouldn't he? He didn't make himself. By him all things were created, whether they're in heaven or on the earth, whether they're visible or whether they're invisible. And you think, okay, well, I can maybe think of a way to get around that. But wait a minute, verse 17. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. By him all things were created. He's before everything else, and in him everything else holds together. So Paul clearly is not thinking of the Son as being a member of the category all things. He's before everything else. This is what he means by he's the firstborn of all creation. It doesn't mean that he is the first creature. It means rather that he is over all things. He is the firstborn over all creation. Not the first thing God made. If you think about Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, it says that the son holds the universe in being by the word of his power. That the Son is the one who holds all things together. He's not one of the creatures, he's one of the creators. He and the Father together are the creators of the heavens and the earth. For by him all things were created. So, okay. So if it doesn't mean that he's one of the creatures... What does firstborn of all creation mean? Well, think about what a firstborn is in the Bible. The firstborn is the one who stands to inherit the father's estate. In fact, when you read the narratives in Genesis, one of the things that keeps happening is God keeps making promises to the secondborn instead of the firstborn. You think of Jacob and Esau. Right? Esau, I mean, they're, they're both born together, right? They're twins. They're both born together, and Esau is born first. Jacob comes out grabbing his heel, right? He, they come out together, but Esau's first, so technically Esau's the firstborn. He should be the one who inherits everything from Isaac, his father. But what happens is, God makes a promise that the older will serve the younger, that actually I'm going to make Isaac the heir of your covenant. I'm going to make Jacob the heir of the promises and the blessings, not Esau. And so, and this causes a big, big fight in Genesis, right? Where Jacob and Esau are estranged for decades. There's this shifting of the balance. The firstborn is supposed to inherit everything, not the second, third, or fourth. The firstborn is supposed to be the heir. That's the way the Bible's thinking here. The firstborn of creation is the heir of creation. He's God's son. He's the firstborn son. He's the one who stands to inherit the universe. 
The whole cosmos is his inheritance. It belongs to him. You see this in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. And in the very end of the verse, all things were created through him and for him. That's what being firstborn means. The whole cosmos, the heavens, the earth, you, me, galaxies, strings of galaxies, subatomic particles, everything you can imagine, all creation was made by God through His Son and for His Son. He stands to inherit all of it. He's the heir of all things. And just consider this. Everything you encounter in reality, in the world, exists because Jesus makes it exist and it exists for Him. Every person you see, every blade of grass you step on, every bird you hear chirping, every cloud that wisps by, every drop of water that comes out of the shower head, every creature, every animal, every angel, every bacteria, every planet, every star, all the empty space between them, absolutely all of it belongs to Him and it was made, it exists for His pleasure, for His glory to be His inheritance. You were made for Christ. You exist for Him. And you find your ultimate purpose and fulfillment and significance by living for Him, by giving yourself to Him because that's what you were made for. You weren't made to give yourself over to the husks and ashes that the world has to offer. To suck on those dry, empty, cracked, barren wells and try to get some satisfaction out of them down here in the world. But you were meant to drink from the, from the eternal fountain of living water that never runs dry and that satisfies the, the thirsty soul. That's what you were made for. You were made for Him. All that exists belongs to Him. Every fact in this universe that is a fact is a fact because Jesus makes it a fact. And it's for His glory and for His purposes. That tells us how we ought to live. We should bring ourselves to Him and belong to Him willingly, faithfully, and joyfully. So, as heir, everything belongs to Jesus. And in verse 16 it says that He is higher than all other powers and all other authorities. It says in verse 16... For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. All the other authorities in the universe, he is above. He is Lord of his creation. And because Jesus is Lord of his creation as the firstborn... He's also the Lord or the head of his church. And we see this in verses 18 through 20. He is the head of his church. Here in verse 18 it says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
Paul says this at greater length in a parallel passage in his letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, Paul says this. He says that in Christ, um, that God worked his great power in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He is the head of Every ruler and every authority, every celestial power, every demonic force, the devil himself, he is absolutely the head and Lord and sovereign, the supreme one over all things. And he is the supreme sovereign over all things for us, for his church. He uses his headship and his sovereignty to serve and love and nurture and care for his body, the church. That's what Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 5. Just as a husband loves and serves as head his wife, faithfully laying down his life for her good and for her joy, for her promotion, for her protection, for her flourishing, for her holiness, he, does every, he uses the fullness of his headship to serve her. That's what Christ does for the church. He uses the fullness of his headship to love his people perfectly. To be Lord for them, not against them. He is the head of the church. And then it says, he is the beginning. He's the beginning. And anytime you hear in the Bible somebody start talking about the beginning, your mind ought to race back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, Jesus is the beginning. He's the new beginning, the new Genesis. Jesus is that origin or starting point of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. He comes to make all things new. A new Genesis started on Easter where God is remaking through Christ the heavens and the earth. Why is Jesus this new beginning? Because of his resurrection. Look at, again, verse 18. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty, he is the first fruits of those who sleep in death. The first fruits, the initial crop before the full harvest comes. He's the first one, not to just die for a little, like a day or two and then come back, because Lazarus was raised from the dead. Other people in the Bible have died and come back. That's not what, we're talking about resuscitation. We're not talking about that. We're talking about Jesus goes into the black heart of death and he doesn't just come back. He goes through death and out the other side into the resurrection. The final resurrection, the resurrection body, the new heavens and new earth. Jesus enters into God's future first. And that's why he's the first fruits. He's the first, he's the first crop that comes up before the full harvest, before we're all raised from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. The first one to come back out the other side of death. 
He's the first one to have life after life after death. He's the new Genesis. He's the beginning of the resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead. And that means his resurrection is the thing that launches God's new creation. His resurrection at Easter is the day that Jesus launched the new heavens and the new earth program that we are a part of. And that means that we, his church, we are his body. We are, as Christians, by faith, through the Holy Spirit, we are connected to a resurrected body, a living, exalted body. And that means as we come to faith and we're united to the living Christ, we are participating in his new creation. We are being made new in anticipation of the day when all things will be made new. He's making us brand new. That means that you and I as Christians, we are people from the future. We are the people who will inhabit the new heavens and new earth who have already been made new on the inside and we're living in the middle of history before the end finally comes. We are participating in His new creation body. You and I are being made new by the power of the resurrected Christ being prepared to enter into that new heavens and new earth. As the firstborn, Jesus is preeminent and He is sovereign and He is supreme and He is going to see to it that we are all made new so that we all make it into His new creation. As it says at the end of verse 18, in everything He might be preeminent. He's Lord of all creation and He is Lord and Head of His church. And He uses His headship and He uses His authority to save you and I perfectly. And the question now arises... Why is it that Jesus is uniquely qualified to be Lord of creation and head of his church? Why is Jesus the firstborn? Now here Paul uses that word for again in verse 19. For what I just said is true for or because what I'm about to say next. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent for, verse 19... In Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That again tells you that when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, he's not saying Jesus is the first creature. Because the fullness of all that God is, His full and complete deity, is fully in Jesus, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You see, Christ is divine. He is the divine, eternal Son of God. Not a mere man, not an exalted angel that came down and took on flesh and now is a, a, a higher angel than he was when he started. Nothing like that. No angel could ever say, the fullness of God dwells in me. No mere man could say, without being a blasphemer, the fullness of all that God is, is in me. No one could say that. Jesus made claims like that in the Gospel of John, and they wanted to stone him to death. Because they understood what he was saying. They felt the blasphemy down in their bones, and they wanted to rid the earth of him. 
Jesus is uniquely qualified as the firstborn because all the fullness of God dwells in him. You and I, as I've said before, you and I are sons and daughters of God by grace. By the grace and the gift of being adopted into his family. But Jesus was not adopted into God's family. Jesus is the natural born son of God. He's the son of God by nature. He has the fullness of God in him by nature. He is the eternal divine son of the father. That's why he's the true firstborn And then second, in verse 19, it says, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and, verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is uniquely qualified to be the firstborn because he's the one who came and reconciled all things to the Father. For in Christ, heaven and earth are reconciled, By his incarnation. The man from heaven is how Paul describes him. So that in Christ, heaven and earth come together. The divine, eternal Son of God takes upon himself our lowly human nature. And in him, heaven and earth are reconciled. They come together. And through his cross, he is pulling the cosmos back together from its alienation from God. He is pulling his people back to God, making peace between them by the blood of his cross. And because he is the son who reconciles everything to God, he is uniquely qualified to be the firstborn. He's the firstborn in his divine nature, and he's the firstborn in his human nature as well as the first one from the dead who reconciles all things to God. He alone is uniquely qualified for this office. That's why he is Lord of his creation and head of his church. That brings us to the final point Paul has for us in this text. Not only is he Lord of creation and head of his church, he is also redeemer of his people in verses 21 to 23. By mentioning reconciliation there in verse 20. And mentioning the blood and the cross in verse 20, Paul transitions into the final thought of our text that Jesus, the firstborn, is the redeemer of his people. Paul reminds us in verse 21 of the lost state that we were in the lost state of sin from which we have been reconciled to God. Verse 21, And you who once were alienated, that's why reconciliation was needed, because there was alienation. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled. So he reminds us of that lost state of estrangement, of alienation, of hostility between us and God as lost sinners. He reminds us of that condition. And he says that is what the Son of God has come and reconciled you from to bring you back to God. No longer hostile, no longer alienated, but reconciled in love and peace and friendship with the Father. And then he says, then he, then he raises this question for us. How have we been reconciled? And he says, it is in verse 22, in his body of flesh by his death. 
in his body of flesh by his death. The sacrifice of Christ's fleshly body is what accomplishes our reconciliation. Now, here we need to take a step back. The controlling idea that frames and shapes this whole passage from 15 to 22, the whole thing that shapes and frames this passage in Colossians, that controlling concept running through the whole thing begins to come to the foreground here. What Paul is doing in this text is he is thinking of Jesus in terms of the Jerusalem temple and the priestly office of intercession and atonement. He has in mind here in the background, Jesus as a temple, as the temple, and as the high priest who intercedes and makes atonement for the sins of God's people. And he gives several clues that he's thinking this way in the text. And they'll, they'll pop out at you once, once you see it. He gives three clues that he's thinking of Jesus as a temple, and then he gives three clues that he's thinking of Jesus as a priest in that temple. Here they are. First, the three clues that he's thinking about the temple. Number one, he says in verse 15, that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Now, what do you put in a temple in the pagan world? You put the image of the deity in that temple. The temple for Zeus has a lovely idol in it that looks like Zeus. The temples of the ancient world were filled and cluttered with the images of the deity. The temple in Jerusalem was ridiculed because they didn't have an image, an idol, in the Holy of Holies. And there's a reason for that. God didn't want them to have some silly picture or statue of the image when he planned to send his image in person. God's image is a living, breathing person. Christ serves the purpose of what an idol served in a pagan temple. Christ is the image of the invisible God. When we see Christ, we're looking at God's image. That's the first clue that we're thinking about temples. Second, the divine presence dwells in Christ. Verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Think of the old covenant tabernacle when the Shekinah glory of God would come down upon the place and fill the tabernacle so much that Moses couldn't even go in. When the fullness of God's presence filled the tabernacle, God was in the house. And this is saying that in Christ, God's presence dwells. That's a temple idea. Christ is the image of God and he is the place where the fullness of God's presence dwells. He's the temple. Third clue that we're, all, that we're thinking about temples, that Christ is the place where heaven and earth meet, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. As I said, in the incarnation, heaven and earth meet. That's what the Jews thought their temple was. It's the place where heaven and earth come together. It's the place on earth where you can be in the presence of God who is in heaven. A heavenly presence is accessible through an earthly place. And now we meet with our God in Christ. We don't have to go to a temple. We just go to Him. He's the place 
where the presence of God dwells. He's the place where heaven and earth overlap and interlock. He's the place where the image of our God dwells. Three clues that we're thinking about temples. Now, three clues that Paul is also thinking of Jesus as a priest. The high priest who serves God in this temple. Clue number one. He says that Jesus is the priest who makes peace between God and the people by his blood. Verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Or back in verse 20. He makes peace by the blood of his cross. This is what the Old Testament sacrificial system is all about. The priest takes the animal. The animal sheds its blood and gives its life. And that is the thing that forgives sins, washes away sins, and reconciles you to God. It's the thing that absolves you of your guilt and restores you into the favor of God. It's the thing that establishes peace between the worshiper and his God. It's the blood. Christ is the one who makes peace between God and God's people by blood. He's a priest. Second clue. The priest offers sacrifice... And, he's, and in this case, the priest sacrifices his own body. A high priest has to offer an animal in sacrifice. You take its life and shed its blood. Now here, Jesus has to offer a sacrifice. But what he, so he's the priest who offers the sacrifice, but he's also the sacrificial lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's also the one who sacrifices his own self. This is why Paul says that he reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. That's just like an extra way of saying Jesus died for you. And he, he gave his body of flesh in his death. So here we have the eternal son of God who takes upon himself a body, a human nature... And then he goes to the cross and he offers that flesh up to God, the sacrificial victim on the cross. He sheds his own blood. He's the sacrifice. He's the one in the temple making the sacrifice. That's clue number two. Final clue that Paul's thinking of him as a priest. This sacrifice of Christ's body makes us holy. Verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Old Testament sacrifices were about taking away your uncleanness and your impurity and making you holy so that you can now stand in God's presence as clean and acceptable in his sight. Christ's Sacrifice of his own body, his own flesh, giving himself and his own life and his own blood is what makes you holy, makes you clean and pure and acceptable in God's sight. Christ performs the function of a great high priest. So Christ is the temple. He's the image in the temple. He's the place where the fullness of God's presence dwells. He is the priest who offers his own self as sacrifice, sheds his own blood, and by his sacrifice once for all, you are made holy. He accomplishes a perfect redemption and reconciles you back to God. Jesus is the temple and he is the priest. Jesus as firstborn is our new temple. We don't need the one in Jerusalem anymore. He's our new temple. He's our new high priest. We don't need an earthly priesthood anymore. 
He's our perfect sacrifice. We don't have to offer any more sacrifices. He has fully redeemed us. This is why we, didn't, we don't have to keep going to temples and keep offering animals and keep doing all that Old Testament stuff. Jesus fulfilled all that. That's why we don't do it anymore. Not because it's unimportant, but because Jesus already did it once for all for you. He did it all for you. Jesus is Lord of his creation. Jesus is the head of his church, and Jesus is the redeemer of his people because he is the firstborn son of God. Paul concludes the same place we must conclude with a call to enter into this new temple of Christ by faith and to continue in faith to the end. We must endure to the end with the firstborn and hold fast to his gospel. This is how Paul finishes. He says in verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul says to you today, Christian, put your whole hope your whole trust, all your faith, all your confidence, bank everything, risk everything, stake everything on this firstborn, this risen Jesus. Trust him completely and continue steadfast in that trust. Do not lean on anything but him. Trust in his perfect person, his finished work. Trust that he is who God says that he is. He is the firstborn. He is your Lord and head and redeemer. He is your new temple. He is your new priest. He is your perfect sacrifice. He has made you holy. You are acceptable before God. He has done it all. Come to Christ. Enter into this temple. Enter into fellowship with your reconciled Father. That's what salvation is all about. Come to Christ today. Come to the Father through Jesus Christ, His Son. Stand in this hope. Cling to this gospel. Do not be shaken. Do not depart. But continue to trust in Him alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much that Easter wasn't simply a one-off event a holiday that came and went. But it's something that we carry in our hearts daily. That the risen Jesus is alive in the real world. He is exalted in a real heaven. That He lives, not just down in our hearts by faith, but He lives out there in reality, in the real world. And He is your firstborn Son. He is the place that we meet with you. He is the place that we find you. He's the place that we see you for who you are. He's the place where we find mercy. He is our altar, our mercy seat, where we can come and claim all your promises, where we can come and find forgiveness, where we can come and find mercy and grace and strength to stand. And so we come on this day, in this Easter season, knowing that Christ indeed is risen for us today. He is a temple with doors wide open and we run in 
to him and find refuge in him. And we thank you that he has reconciled us to you, our, our father, that we can know you and be known by you so that we can enter into that perfect joy that lasts forever. Prepare us here in the middle of history to be your people, to be the people of the future, to be that new creation body you've called us to be, to be a resurrection power church, to go forward and to spread your new life all around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.